socialists, the, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, and they'd say, oh, but aren't you so glad that you're in America? I said, well, I know a lot of Russian filmmakers, they have a lot more freedom than I have. All they have to do is be careful about criticizing the government. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Before we start, if you're new to the channel, please hit that like button, hit subscribe, and don't forget to hit that notification bell so you're alerted whenever we go live as we're constantly adding new shows. Just so you know, I did play the wrong intro music. I'm so used to it being just me. When it's just me, it's like usually a pop life. So... My bad. This is a regular This Is Revolution show, but it's just me. And this is pre-recorded. So sadly, we won't be able to see your guys' wonderful comments, conspiracy theories, what we got wrong about said movie. Sorry. Definitely, you can tell me in the Champagne Room, we will be going live. The Champagne Room will be live. Tucson and I definitely want to talk to you guys about some stuff I read in the paper. As always, thank you to all the YouTube and Twitch subscribers and everyone that subscribes on any platforms. Don't forget, if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, and according to the statistics, about 49% of the audio-only podcast listeners listen to us on Apple, you can subscribe to the show and get access to the Champagne Room. If you'd like to have access to the Champagne Room, if you have the means and feel so inclined and would like to support the show so we can continue to stay on the air and bring you this quality programming. Become a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. It could all be yours. Access to Champagne Rooms past and present. Be part of the live virtual audience for the Pascal Robert Hurst Mau Mau Hour. And also join us for movie night. And right now, all the patrons are getting the PDF of my latest I was a teenage anarchist and patrons get a special discount code if they want tickets to the live meet and greet. that will be going on this Saturday, November 18th in Fairfield, California. Ben Burgess is going to be there to kick the whole thing off. Chris Contos from Machine Head, Forbidden, The Boneless Ones, Attitude Adjustment, so many bands. Craig LaCicero from Forbidden and Rick Hunolt from Exodus and Die Humane. So many originators of that Bay Area thrash sound. We're going to be talking about the cultures of authenticity and deconstruction. Definitely going to be mingling with the folks. It's a nice, quaint environment. There's going to be food. There's going to be beverages, adult beverages. I want to see your face in the place wherever you are watching this show. There are links in the description. Again, if you're a patron, there's a special discount code for you. So all that being said, let me bring in my guest. We tried to record this earlier in the week, and literally the system that we used shut down. Everything shut down. So let's knock on wood. I've had a system shut down yesterday. If you watch the show, literally the power went out in my whole area in the middle of the stream. So let's hope for the best. Um, during the early days of the race to the moon, American cinema was filled with visions of a bright future of flying cars and a less reliance on fossil fuels, electric everything, and robot servants. After the moon landing, why has the depiction of the future been one of corporatocracy? (laughs) I practiced saying that word all day, and then I did an interview before this show, and I totally forgot. From Blade Runner to Terminator, the rise of machines and machine learning is no longer the future of leisure and entertainment, but one of nightmares. Our guest, Michael Harris, has a new book out, that tells us how science fiction isn't simply predicting the future, but using 
the idea of the future to warn us about our now. Please welcome Michael Hires. Hi, Jason. I think the titles were excellent. The titles were perfect for this. <laughs> um, we were we were doing a show and we we're about a half hour in and then bam, everything just crashed on us. So uh, I'm just going to go from from jump. Um, Michael, why do you think the early Cold War slash space race visions of the future weren't so laden with man's corporate control of the planet and its resources, but more with the hope of a technologically advanced civilization? At worst, we say nuclear-powered monsters, or we see nuclear-powered monsters that were an accident or evil aliens, but that was about it. What leads us to Soylent Green and Silent Runnings of the early 70s? So the best science fiction needs to be credible, right? Mm-hmm. And we enjoy fantasy stories, but if you're really going to speak to an audience, it has to feel like it could be a future, however dramatized. And I think that 1950s flying cars, space rockets future just no longer became credible is the first reason. Audiences wouldn't respond to it. It seemed rather dated. And then in terms of the filmmakers and and the writers, you had going on, of course, in the late 1960s, 1970s, the rise of the environmental movement, uh, the new left. Mm -hmm. That environmental movement starts off being about kind of national parks and air pollution, however important you know those things are, but parts of that environmental movement become more critical of the machine in new left parlance of, of capitalism. And it's that turn into predictions of environmental catastrophe, unless we change course, which then is also reflected in, I think, some of the best sci-fi because that's what's happening in in our politics in many countries and so it it feels like it speaks to a future more than the kind of 1950s jetsons stuff um could ever have have done and there was that period in terms of the film business as well where the studio system had broken down at the end of the 1960s and you get the new filmmakers seizing that opportunity including you know people like george lucas francis ford coppola and so on that also happens in in science fiction they seize the opportunities to make maybe more politically interesting socially conscious films than they had the chance to do in the old 1950s 1960s studio system i mean i agree with that wholeheartedly um i think the new left definitely has an imprint on science but a lot of movies in the uh, in the early 70s um definitely if people haven't checked it out go watch silent runnings it's one of those science fiction movies that uh, i think it's forgotten because alien becomes such a large alien in 2001 are just so large in the science fiction uh, viewing community that sometimes movies like that get forgotten uh, <clears throat> you also write about a classic film in your book um Back to the Future. And uh, many people look at movies like Back to the Future uh, Part 2 as a future that didn't happen. Cards and skateboards aren't flying. Some people, as you describe in the book, look at Back to the Future 2 as a very Reaganite film. But you write uh, about how that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, In the book, you say, the films not only critique the middle class entitlement, they suggest that greed, selfishness, and materialism are the problem. They're what screwed up the future and absent the fantasy of time travel. It's too late to change what happens next. Even more, the middle class American promise of utopia may always have been a lie and its decline has sown the seeds of its coming dystopia. So what are the Back to the Future movies actually trying to tell us? Yeah, so I should explain. So the new book I've got out I used nine science fiction movies from the 70s, but some of them are 80s and a couple in the 90s to talk about how they've predicted the future that we're increasingly living in. And so there are some of the movies you might expect to be in there, like the Blade Runners and the Terminator 2s and so on. Soylent Green, Rollerball, 
you know, all, all great kind of in some ways socially conscious um, science fiction. Back to the Future, the Back to the Future series seems like it's the odd one out um, because, as you say, many people will interpret that as a kind of Reaganite fantasy. You know, he has to go back to the idyllic 1950s to fix a problem with his family in the 80s. And at the end of the first movie, they all turn into, uh, you know, successful yuppies. The father has published this uh, successful science fiction book, you know, and they're living in their lovely pastel colored soft furnishing house and all of that. You think, okay, Reaganite fantasy. And of course it's got Michael J. Fox, who was the star of Family Ties, where he plays the young Republican. So you put him in it and, you know, yeah, and there's all this stuff about, they say at various points, you know, the future is what you make it. So it sounds like a very meritocratic, uh, Reaganite, small town, idealistic movie. You can make your own future. You know, it's all up to you. Morning in America. Mm-hmm. But even in the first film, uh, you look in the background of, of the small town, the local cinema is showing porn movies, you know, there's tattoo parlors, it's fraying at the edges. So, of course, this is 1985, the film comes out. So it's a year after Reagan's landslide election victory. This is supposed to be morning in America. And it looks like the, the middle class or the lower middle class, as represented by the McFly family, at least, ain't doing too well he then has to go back to the 1950s and actually the 1950s isn't this idyllic conservative reaganite 1950s that we're told we have to go back to it's violent it's sexist racist Mm -hmm. um there's still you know exploitation in it uh he tries to fix those problems seems like it's been fixed at the end pauline kale who was the the famous film critic for the New Yorker said, you know, the ending should be satire, but it isn't. But I absolutely think it is satire. You know, the way that family at the end is is presented, it's it's the Michael J. Fox's character's projection of what success is in Reaganite America. It's it's supposed to be satirical if you want to take it that way. And then, of course, we get on to Back to the Future 2, which is much more sci-fi dystopia in particular the alternative 19 the alternative is it 1985 or 2015 2015 i believe it's supposed to be the trump dominated thing which really is carnage they the 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 filmmakers have explicitly said we base that character the biff tannen character on on donald trump you know so they're in that they're puncturing that Trumpian kind of self-made man, American success, wealth and power thing and saying, well, actually, this is what you get. You get you get this this uh, this wasteland. So I think there's all that going on. Then in the third film, he has to go back 100 years to try and sort <laughs> this stuff out, you know. And and again, I think, you know, it can play to two audiences at the same time. Right. Those that want a nice sci fi fantasy comedy movie but those who um want to see something else in it but i think what it's saying is the roots of this loss of the american dream go deep you know they are not about a lack of individual effort they are they are about something you know the academics would call structural in in these societies and to go back to your first question i think it's about i think you can read it as being about disinvestment Hmm. disinvestment in in the public realm and disinvestment in people i mean you look at the michael j fox character he's he's um uninterested in school right he he knows that's he doesn't want to turn out like his father and he knows he gets a a nice college education or whatever he senses that's not going to make a difference so this is not the character from family ties something else has happened to this character you know reality has hit this character in the face and his only dream is being a rock star Mm -hmm. which is which is like hoping you get out of your situation by being a sports star right that's the Mm -hmm. only way and then the only way the rich come to dominate in the future really dominate is through cheating 
Biff steals the the sports almanac, you know. So I think I think there's a lot going on in there in terms of the decline of the American dream. Why people are so angry? Because if we met up with the McFly family today, who do you think that they would be voting for? You know, there might be some Trumpists in there, right? Who's going to sort this shit out for us? We're angry. We've 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 lost our opportunities. It's it's interesting, you know. I you sent me this manuscript, I think, like two years ago. Yeah. So I've been fawning over this book for some time, and we had you on a while, about a year ago, to talk about it. Um, go back and, and check that show out. It was, uh, you know, Dan Larson from Secret Galaxy was on that show as well. Um, I rewatched Back to the Future one and two. I think when we did that show and it was a whole different movie for me when you look at, especially back to the future one as Marty McFly saving the American dream or saving middle-class security, because I didn't realize how rundown Hill Valley was because the rundown suburb that I lived in in Richmond, California looked quite more frightening than, than Hill Valley. But when we go to back to the future part two in kind of the Donald Trump world, um, it's all about sex and gambling, which I find fascinating because here we are in the moment of OnlyFans um, and legalized sports betting kind of in every state now. Um, so even the way that sports is talked about in in sports talk radio now is done from the perspective of gambling. If it's not fantasy, then it's literally like about point spreads, which really changes the way you see the game because you're not looking at at the game for what it is. You're you're looking at people that have individual value, and um, and and you're you're watching it for weird um, patterns like this team does this after a rainout on a Thursday, after a day night doubleheader kind of thing. Um, and I, and I, and you kind of bring that up in the book of, of the Biff Tannen world. And in the whole book, you're basically saying these guys aren't predicting the future. They're telling us about what they see going on right now. And I find that fascinating because, you know, those guys didn't think that Donald Trump was going to be president. That's why it was funny. And, you know, literally a year after it's supposed to take place, Donald Trump becomes president. What do you say to people? That because I'm sure in your casual conversation, um, when people find out what you do for a living, um, they want to comment about these movies predicting the future. What do you say to people that say that, oh, these movies are predicting the future, like The Simpsons and stuff like that? What do you say to that? So, yeah, you're right that I think we can see some sci fi as, as being more descriptive than it's attempting to be predictive. And as you were saying earlier, we often focus on on the technology. So mm-hmm. where's my flying car? Where's my mm-hmm. self-lacing Nikes and all of that? Again, Back to the Future is really smart about that because the the 2015 they go to first, where you've got these you know, like holograms and all and all this stuff, is really I think you can read that as a 1950s view of what 2015 might be like mm. it's not a 1990s view really it's again it's a kind of satire mm-hmm. and it and it's missing the point in that film and lots of other films where we go well we haven't got that technology as you know what's going on at the moment is the kind of tech bro right are saying oh yeah i'll tell you why we haven't got your flying car it's because of the liberals <laughs> It's because of environmentalism and regulation and, and big government and so on. So, you know, recently, Mark Andreessen, the, the um, boss of the big Silicon Valley venture capital firm, wrote this 10,000 word manifesto, you know, techno optimism. We can we can deliver all these things. And so and, and, and we're fools, obviously, if we. Firstly, just focus on the technology and secondly, allow the technology to be determined and owned mm-hmm. by all of those Silicon Valley, Elon Musk uh, tech 
bros um because as we can talk about with some of the other films you know it it's not about um the technology itself it's about who owns it mm-hmm. that's really i think what our fear of some of these technologies is it's that they're owned by certain people who are writing the codes for them and we don't get to know what that code is we don't get to know what that algorithm is and but we're asked to believe in that technologically optimistic future and as you can see in these films you know we've we've kind of been down that road in our imagine in our imaginations we're increasingly going down that road or have gone down that road in real life and these films were telling us that 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 was going to be a problem they were saying there are parts of the present when they were made that if if we don't challenge them if we don't form some resistance against them are going to be the the 2015 or the 2022 or the 2030 you know depicted in lots of these movies now you start the book off talking about blade runner uh your description of the universe in which blade runner is placed is one of people living in almost lawless conditions among the ruins of ecological collapse corporate rule has taken the place of more traditional liberal democracy rollerball has a similar feel as well maybe not as dark in its presentation you quote william gibson who says uh in his, about his book neuromancer which kind of is the book that is one of the groundworks of, of uh, uh, cyberpunk, which is the universe that I would say that uh, uh, Blade Runner is in. It's definitely a cyberpunk universe. I wanted to write a novel where, where multinational capital took over, straighten that shit out, but the world was still problematic. Now you go on to write, in our world, we didn't need a nuclear exchange to lead to the withdrawal of the state from ensuring the security of citizens, let alone any role in advancing solutions to avert major crises in our world. Nuclear destruction didn't lead us to a Mad Max dystopia, Dr. Harris, but a failure of institutions has. Is that what sci-fi is ultimately telling us about the failure of institutions? Well, I I don't think it's so much the failure of institutions as the way this right-wing project what we used to call the new right before Mm -hmm. the new new right (laughs) uh you know had had this agenda from the 1960s and and 1970s and just before we talk about blade runner and and rollerball Mm -hmm. what's also interesting about these films is some of these films get caught up in that project in the sense that you look at something like soil and green Mm -hmm. came out in 1973 that's so that's bang in the middle of that rising, environmentally conscious, increasingly critical of capitalism mm-hmm. period before the Reagan pushback. And what I think has been um, not talked about enough is how that new right, the Reaganite, Thatcherite new right that was forming and planning in the 1960s, 1970s, took power in the 1980s in many countries was in part a reaction to that rising capitalism critical environmental movement. So you have in Reagan's inauguration speech, he, he says there are no limits to growth. Hmm. What's he talking about there? He's referencing one of the ideas that, that became more widespread in the 1970s, that there were limits to growth, that our, our rate of resource use would lead to a situation actually in the 2020s 2030s where we're approaching a kind of civilizational collapse not the mad max kind of wasteland Mm -hmm. but the collapse in our institutions the collapse in our environment the collapse Mm -hmm. in our political systems the collapse in trust and democracy and truth and so on so reagan is reacting to a report in part that was published a year before soil and green called the limits to growth that is still the best-selling environmental book of all time that put forward some of these scenarios about how we were heading for collapse, Mm. Uh, which is a kind of science fiction in itself, right? I'm gonna tell you about various stories of of the future. So So the right, that right, is a reaction to the idea that there are limits. Uh, It's a reaction to the idea that government or, or, popular public will can um, enforce some of those limits on how we 
exploit the environment. And it's saying through technology, we can escape those limits anyway. Don't worry, in the future, we're going to invent incredible technologies that, that will mean, you know, we're using nuclear power instead. And it's, energy is going to be free. You know, that's what they said in the 1970s. Energy is going to be free. You only have to pay for it. So that's that's part of the story I'm telling in the book is actually how the right was reacting to some of these ideas, including in sci-fi films. Sci-fi films become part of that political story in an interesting way. Then we get on to Blade Runner and Rollerball. And I think they're quite different in some respects. So Blade Runner is obviously most people would say it's obviously dystopian yeah you know every, everything is fucked up the acid rain um the rich people and the healthy people have have fucked off to off-world colonies they've mm-hmm. escaped you know like in elysium uh and and the rest of us are left here under corporate control rollerball is is kind of interesting because i i mean i remember when i saw rollerball as a kid, we used to rent movies we shouldn't have rented, like <laughs> horror films. But anyway, I know exactly the life yeah. you led. Yeah, this is this is your experience as well. And you know, we watched a lot of bad movies, but occasionally yes. we'd watch movies that were like, "Wow, okay, we didn't realize this was like a, a very appraised movie." And Rollerball was one of them. I remember it being really dark and really chilling, you know, and the violence in it, which is. It's not especially graphic, but it's really crunchy. Mm-hmm. You feel, feel this this air of violence. Now, what I think is, is interesting about Rollerball, and I talk about this in the book, it is one of the one of the questions we can ask is: Well, we live in this neoliberal age. They've dominated politics and economics for forty years. Where are the neoliberal utopias? Where are the depictions of those? Mm-hmm. And I think Rollerball is one of them. It's not meant mm. to promote that neoliberal utopia but this is a corporate dominated society there are like six or whatever corporations who run everything who own everything and there is this violent sport now often you get in the kind of futuristic violent sports movies it's the idea is it's a a pressure pressure valve for the the violence of ordinary people you know they get to let off their their violence their violent impulses in this perfect society but actually if you watch rollerball again i think you can see it's the corporate society the corporate run society which is incredibly violent but it's violent in obviously non-physical ways most of the time like corporations are right like corporations are Mm -hmm. and and there's this incredible bit where john houseman who is the kind of corporate leader of the energy corporation says to one of the rollerball players he says do you know what executives corporate executives dream of they dream of being rollerball players and smashing people's faces in Mm. you know and and so i think you can read the film as it's it's that corporate violence which actually infects society not that society needs this outlet of an incredibly violent increasingly violent future sport i mean the 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 corporate language that becomes so commonplace in the 80s you know uh now we say mergers and acquisitions but we used to say you know corporate takeovers and and things like that I i think you you saw that for me um because they didn't have the courts that they could go to and they couldn't regulate through politicians. That's kind of what you see in the nineties for me with, with the drug trade. I mean, this is, this is capitalism at large. Um, they got a cheap product that they learned how to, to make a massive profit on by cooking it down into, into a crack and cutting it. So you get more of the, the, the inexpensive product and the gangs that were already there, are a built-in distribution system. And you already have kind of a captive uh, uh, base of people to buy your product because they can't really go anywhere. So, you know, the violence of corporations is being acted out in the streets. And when we see it in that light, um, we have to act, right? As a nation, we need crime bills and we need to build more jails. But 
you know, the corptocracy is the corporatocracy is running rampant still. It's still for the most part unregulated and causes much more harm than the regional harm that you see with like street gangs. Um, And never is it really regulated or even thought of to be regulated. No. And rollerball is interesting because you wouldn't, you wouldn't think at first sight, it, and obviously we should make clear to people we're talking about the original rollerball. Yes, the 2003 that, rollerball that was, doesn't count. Doesn't count. Doesn't count. Never happened. Never. So happened. James Khan. So it's all James Khan. It's all James Khan. And what's interesting, uh, I don't know if you remember that scene. It's really haunting in the original rollerball. They they go to a party. It's a corporate party. Yes, I know the scene and, you're talking about. And they're trying to get James Khan to retire because mm-hmm. he's becoming too popular and he's becoming a bit of a, a figurehead. So you would think the, the film is not like super political at first sight because there's no revolutionary group. There's no resistance group mm-hmm. that we see in the movie, you know, plotting to take power or challenge that corporate power. But what we do see is the effect of that corporate society on people, even the privileged people in that society, never mind the wider public. So everyone is on drugs. Everyone's on amphetamines. You know, everyone's drunk. There's one bit where they just shoot lasers at trees for no reason, just kind of destroying shit. There's another scene where a corporate executive is kind of humiliated in front of everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and no one can remember the past. You know, the, the corporate system has made everybody forget the past in fact there's a kind of internet but you have to go to this one place in switzerland to ask it questions yeah because it's controlled by the corporations it's a really kind of interesting look at that corporate conspiracy and domination which of course is was a classic 1970s movie theme beyond beyond sci-fi but including sci-fi uh i don't know if you know this but that was an original idea for gi joe after the fall of the soviet union that the new bad guy was no longer going to be cobra but it was going to be coil okay was, uh, the twins tomat and zamat or no same whatever their names i forget their names but those were going to be the bad guys the corporate bad guys um back to to uh let's see i have some questions here that i wrote um Terminator 2, uh, Terminator, especially T2, puts a lot of focus on Skynet. Uh, We're in a moment where AI is writing songs. The Beatles have a new hit. And and if Hollywood could have it its way, write scripts. (laughs) Have the machines taken over? And if so, is the T2 message antiquated? So I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, it's not so much about the technology. It's about the the social aspects and the, and the politics. Mm-hmm. So I write about Terminator 2 more because it's about how you cope or, or struggle to cope when you know that the future is going to be very different in a very bad way. Mm-hmm. When you know that either there's going to be an AI robot takeover or in our case, you know, maybe that's one of those futures, but it's much more um, obvious that there's going to be environmental collapse, the way that affects our politics, the declining trust in collapsing trust in institutions, the decline of um, middle class opportunity, all those things we've talked about already. So you've got the Linda Hamilton, Sarah Connor character at the beginning of Terminator 2. Of course, she knows what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, people think she's crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, she might even sometimes think she's crazy. She gets locked up for that. She previously was kind of forming a resistance movement mm-hmm. down in Mexico. You know, she's got her bunker mm-hmm. in uh, Baja. Yeah. yeah, I've never asked you what you're you're doing in in Mexico, Jason, but don't tell me. <laughs> you know, but, it's, but it's about what do, what do you do with that knowledge? Um, how do you respond to that future that you know is going to is going to happen and i think more and more people are aware of collapse in in various ways and we're seeing it and we're feeling it across our politics economics environment and so on and and it's kind of crazy making because 
that's not reflected in most of mainstream media or at all in mainstream media just how a number of kind of um really difficult possibly unavoidable situations are coming together that's why we get trump that's why we get brexit you know that authoritarian populism because the right is much better organized actually for that collapse politics mm. than the left so so what do we do uh, we're in the linda hamilton situation right do we start to think about in addition to you know the normal kind of left politics actually forms of survival forms of mutual support you saw some of that in the pandemic you've seen some of that in natural disasters we need to accelerate those efforts so that's that's how i really use terminator 2 in in the book the one that is more explicitly in the book about artificial intelligence is a film that most people probably haven't heard of called Colossus, which came out in 1970, which is a bit kind of like war games um, mm -hmm. in that the US government has created this artificial intelligence strategic defense computer. Mm -hmm. And then they announced to the world, we're giving it all the control of uh, the nuclear weapons because, you know, it's going to make decisions in a very logical way more than more than humans do and of course that does not turn out well but that's but that's about that is about trusting technology and the thing we were talking about earlier which is who writes the algorithms you mm -hmm. know what assumptions and and of course most of the time it's elites in one way or another it's it's the silicon valley millionaires and and billionaires um uh, and they're tr they're asking us to trust those algorithms and we already know through really great researchers and writers you know just how racist and and sexist um those algorithms are and yet that's supposed to be our future so that's that's the the concern about technology it's not artificial intelligence mm -hmm. in itself i don't think hmm. um Does a movie like 12 Monkeys tell us more about the future or how not to change the past, but learn from it? Well, I think it says you can't change the past, unfortunately. It's a, you know, so you have Bruce Willis at the beginning, right? He, he's seen his own death. He doesn't realize it's his own death, spoiler alert. Um, and again, that's a bit like the T2 situation. We have these premonitions. Mm-hmm. And actually, some of our premonitions are in science fiction films. We feel like we've, we've seen this movie already. Mm -hmm. We just don't quite understand how we got there. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the plot of the film, of course, is not about... He's already told at the beginning of the film, you cannot change this future. We just want to understand how exactly the virus was released mm -hmm. and learn more about it. Uh, and... and and so that's what he tries to do. But in a weird way, then uh, he may have inadvertently caused the virus. Yeah. You, go, you go, you know, it's yeah. one of those, your head starts to explode. But is that, again, how the crazy makingness of those premonitions, which turn out to be true, and how those are dismissed. So you have the, the psychologist, psychiatrist in the movie, Mm -hmm. you know who, who writes this so, book. yeah yeah who writes this book on what she calls the cassandra complex you know how various people in history who have prophesized doom haven't been believed and then of course it all and then of course it all uh, comes true so i think uh, i think it's about that and i think it's about how you cannot change fundamentals of the future because in because as the movie says they've already happened Mm -hmm. You know, um, carbon dioxide that we're emitting from our, our power systems, our transport systems and so on, that stuff is going to stay in the atmosphere for 30 years. So we're now experiencing some of the damage mm -hmm. that Exxon knew was going to happen in their private reports that they kept secret and mm -hmm. buried in exactly the period that some of these 70s and 80s sci-fi films were made so again there's a kind of circularity 
to it. And we cannot we cannot change that. And yet again, the tech bros come along and say, don't worry, technology is going to work that out. We're going to we're going to scrub all the carbon dioxide from the air. <laughs> They've been talking about that for 10 years, 20 yeah. years. Mm -hmm. It ain't going to happen. It's going to happen in a small way, but it's not it's not the um, the solution to the crisis, you know, which is here already. I think you can say uh, I call it in the book early collapse politics, you know, that we have to adjust to. And again, you uh, I'm self-conscious about it because you can sound like a doomer. Right. You can you can sound like you can start sounding like a crazy person. But look out the window. I, I, I think it's a, it's an interesting time because I, I feel like people are kind of waking up to the idea of collapse. But I think a lot of people still see collapse through a science fiction lens. So collapse has to be some sort of massive frost all over the world, like day after tomorrow. And that's you know, nuclear destruction is how we thought collapse was going to look like when we were kids growing up in the Cold War. And that feels further and further away from the truth, even as we're seeing literal conflicts explode in uh, Russia and the Middle East, they don't feel like world power nuclear situations, mainly because the U.S. isn't going to fight a war like WW2 anymore. It's going to be a proxy battle at this point. Um, and, and it's going to be about, I mean, one of the, the pressures is the huge number of refugees and climate refugees. Yes, climate refugees. That's how you get Brexit. That's how you get Brexit. You know, you have a, a crop failure in in Syria. Mm -hmm. And then the right seizes on that to say, we got to we got to shut the borders. we got to get out of Europe. Mm -hmm. That's a sign to me. That's a sign of early collapse uh, again. But they're doing a great job on the wording because the fight becomes between liberals and conservatives, in my opinion, one of racism and a threat to, to securities to your not even middle class security just your personal security yeah and the, and that becomes the argument and it's not about the environment and if you try to bring up the environment you almost get looked at like some sort of hippie it's like all of a sudden i'm wearing hemp pants buddy like no yeah. like, th this is a real thing people are leaving because of a lack of resources i live in a country where my water gets shut off periodically so people in the north can water their lawns there's no lawns here. It's a desert. It's a desert yeah. by the ocean. So when you're when you're kind of when you're blinded by environmental collapse because you don't live in an area like I grew up in Richmond, California, that's where everybody has cancer because you live next to a factory. You don't have polluted water like you know the West Virginia because of uh, blowing the tops off mountains for for mountaintop mining stuff like that you don't really see the ecological damage the same way that maybe bangladesh sees it where the urban core is filled with uh dilapidated factories with exposed wiring and the hinterlands of this very populated area has polluted water due to factories that are manufacturing like cheap leather and stuff like that so you know we are the beneficiaries of environmental collapse. So kind of like what you talk about with Blade Runner, you know, maybe we're not living in the off world colonies, but we're living high in the, uh, in the, in the, in the tower apartment with our robot sex toys. And, uh, that's what, what I do at the weekend, Jason, is nothing. nothing <laughs> really. no, no, you're right, of course. But then you've got the the pandemic, of course, which is yeah. kind of some of those things coming home, right? Because some, yeah. uh, because we're gonna we're gonna be released as the scientists told us, and as was predicted in science fiction and disaster movies, we're gonna have more pandemics as we destroy the environment. Uh, come into contact with animals that we've never been in contact before species we don't know anything mm. about you know whatever it turns out the the actual source of the 2020 plus pandemic was we are going to get more pandemics because of uh, environmental exploitation so some of that is going to come out what have we been doing over the past two or three years you know with the wildfires and pollution mm. we're sharing pictures on social media that look like fucking blade runner yeah. And we're saying, well, is that is that real or is that? Yeah, it's real. It's New York today. It's it's San Francisco today. Mm -hmm. um, so this stuff is is 
coming home. But you're you're right. We get distracted in part because of some sci fi movies by the apocalypse, uh, the fast apocalypse uh, scenario, whereas we're in a kind of slow dystopia scenario, the privileged amongst us. But we're all going to we're all starting to to feel it. And. Well, I just say one more thing. One, I mean, one of the other books, uh, one of the other films I talk about in the book, V for Vendetta, mm -hmm. goes back to your point about how the right exploits this. Because, yes, it does rely on othering and, and saying we haven't got enough stuff. We need to exclude people from it. But also in doing that, it says to a particular group of people, you know, straight, white, middle aged men in particular, we're going to look after you. Yeah. We're yes. going to look, this is our promise to you. Now, unfortunately, that means, you know, allowing some refugees to drown. But, hey, this is now a security situation. Right. And, and they're a surplus population. So, And they're surplus anyway. And they're economically unimportant anyway. So what does it matter? Um, and w w so where is the left's counter to that? You know, where is the left saying, no, no, we will look after you? And does uh, the point where I end the book is does some of that need to be in in a somewhat older tradition of of kind of community organizing the Black Panthers, you know, setting up social services that we actually that we actually need to go back to or incorporate into our politics. So when these multiple crises occur, mm -hmm. we can say to people, we can help you. And this is an example of our politics of mutual cooperation and solidarity. Well, here's a question for you. We have a situation right now in Israel and Palestine where, you know, the people of Gaza live in an open air prison. We've heard it so many times that it kind of doesn't hit the same way anymore. Um, and it's been like that forever. And these people are, are a surplus population for the most part. What's produced there that anyone's going to protect is any nation state going to come in and fight Israel? Is anyone going to fight on, the, you know, on the behalf of the of the Palestinian people? You may get some arms here and there from people, but is anyone really going to? Because ultimately, you're fighting a proxy war against the United States, and who's who's willing to to step up and do that? Um, I heard briefly some people in Congress talking about taking in refugees from the region, but what is the proper left response? How should we be thinking about this situation right now when it comes to organizing? Is protest the only way? I mean, I definitely think it's adding something to the conversation that if it wasn't there, people would probably just be swallowing the U.S. slash Israel line of these are all terrorists uh, very good people on both sides kind of kind of thing. Um, how should we be looking at this? Should we be trying to talk to our Congress people right now about, well, let's let's take in refugees? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm by no means an expert on Israel-Palestine, but the broader point I would make is <laughs> you've got to you've got to live your politics. And <laughs> I think the general public is often quite smart. So let me pivot a bit to the sure. climate crisis as an example, right? Mm -hmm. um, we've been telling people, and the environmental movement has been telling people, a climate crisis is on its way, a climate catastrophe is on its way, and it's getting closer. Mm -hmm. But how have we actually changed how we live? You know, have mm -hmm. we been organizing for that? Mm -hmm. Where are the shelters going to be? Um, how are we going to retrofit our cities so that that People aren't dying from heat. Mm -hmm. By the way, we're going to get cli climate refugees in your own country, right? All those people mm -hmm. in the southwest. Yep. Where are they going to go? Yep. So it's not just an external. It's not just an external thing. So I think there's something in the more people see us living our politics. If we say there there are these multiple catastrophes mm -hmm. or crises. OK, how are you responding to them if you really believe this stuff is happening? Again, the the right, even though they are climate deniers, poverty deniers, racism deniers, mm -hmm. democracy deniers, mm -hmm. they're prepared for this. They have their politics fundamentally in place. Mm. 
and I don't think we do. Now I'm I'm so I'm kind of pleading with someone else as it were to do this work because I I don't have a background in kind of community organizing or anything like like that. But I think people yeah they do want to see people taking in refugees. If you you know they do want to see us thinking about um, how we can help people who have got heat stroke. They do want to see us thinking about what does emergency preparedness look like for flooding. I and the more we can see, we more we can show those things. People go, okay, that's your policy. I get it now, mm-hmm. and I see you taking it seriously. Mm-hmm. And protest is obviously always going to be important, but protest in that sense is inherently passive, isn't it? It, it, feels, it feels very cathartic. Hmm? It feels very cathartic. Uh, it can do. What do you do after you go home? Yeah. You know, I I've been on marches. I I went on marches for nuclear disarmament. Mm-hmm. There were there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people who went on those marches in the 1980s mm-hmm. when our fear was that Terminator nuclear Ar- Armageddon. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, <laughs> I mean, but there were some people mm-hmm. who broke into Air Force bases mm-hmm. and symbolically disarmed missiles. And you know what happened in in the UK where I'm from. In most times, when they went to trial, a jury said that's legitimate civil resistance. Mm. You know? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, there's Andreas Malm, if you, you've had on the, the yeah. podcast, right? Yeah. You know, brilliant. I mean, I think he's a, a beautiful writer as well. His yeah. book, How to, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, mm-hmm. it's an interesting read. No, I mean, look, I think and I don't say this with any sort of joy, Israel-Palestine is showing you the future. Countries with means putting up big walls to to keep out what they yeah. deem their surplus populations. Yeah. Maybe, not, yeah, maybe not ethno-states, but they're not the only place where there's walls. Right? To, to but you say you know, maybe not ethno-states, but I mean... I, so we we talk about V for Vendetta in the book, right? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a white Christian nationalist regime, mm-hmm. neo-fascist, obviously. Is that impossible to imagine in America after next year? No. I think, you know what I think? I think, I, think proud, about it. I, I think the Proud Boys showed us that because of South American migration, you know, uh, what we would call down here in, in the – southern america's white people in the states they're called people of color right white venezuelans white cubans um they were proud boys they were in there too um they're they're right-wing voters a lot of these people live in florida they vote for people like ron DeSantis. so no i think the american uh neo-fascist project is multiracial. I think it's got a DEI initiative and I think it's working out just fine. I see more black conservatives in the YouTube sphere than I've ever seen. Um, even when black people were starting to get money in the 80s, even in the Fresh Prince 90s, the tough on crime 90s. This ain't yeah. even the tough on crime era and there's just people willfully being, being uh, uh, conservatives of color. So that's what's going to make that project grow is that it isn't going to look the same way that it looked in the 80s and 90s when it was a bunch of stay off my land, white people in camouflage, Ruby Ridge style stuff. Yeah. Does that still exist? Hell yeah, it still exists. January 6th was filled with that. But I don't know if that's the end game for that project. Um, but it just the whole thing, I think, is something that we should be leery of. Right walls um that being said i want to end with this because i've been talking to you too long and i know you have things that you have to do as it's early where you are would you call movies like squid games the platform and snowpiercer sci-fi and uh, part two to that question is do you feel they possess a quote there is no alternative message or do you think they're hopeful allegories I feel I don't know what the platform is. I've not I've not It's a seen Spanish it. it's a Spanish movie where uh it's like a prison and they're on these different oh, platforms. Yes, I've heard of it. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. I think I I don't want to kind of sound like the only good sci-fi uh, is the sci-fi I got around to watching, but there's a there's a kind of bit of that in the sense that when I think about the the movies uh, that I talk about in the books, I think they they kind of done it all. Mm-hmm. Everything we need to know fundamentally about what's happening and, and what's going to happen, it, you can kind of draw from those movies. So I say this in the in the afterward to the book. You know, yes, you you could mention um, you could talk about some more recent sci-fi films or TV programs, but essentially you go back to some of these movies or even before. They keep warning us, but the warnings have been made for you know 30, 40 years from that from that growth in in more socially conscious sci-fi. So I'm not I can find some of them entertaining or interesting how they how they put their own twist on it, but I don't feel like any of those movies are kind of telling me something I didn't know from mm. either the sci-fi we some of the sci-fi we've talked about or or just kind of looking out the window i mean i've loved uh, i like the creator i don't know whether you saw the creator recently i i you know i enjoyed it i thought it was really interesting about artificial intelligence mm-hmm. and the way that might affect the world but i'm not sure there was anything kind of fundamentally new in it mm-hmm. and that's fine that's fine very few things are going to say something new right yeah very few books, very few movies, very few TV series. I, I mean, some of them are sci-fi. I don't, yeah, again, I don't think you need the the flying cars to be sci-fi. I mm-hmm. think that's a distraction. No, no, I agree. I, You know what? I've, I've never seen Brazil. And today, oh, wow. the show, I started trying to watch Brazil. I, you know what? I've realized I never watched all the way through. It was 12 Monkeys. I watched 12 Monkeys earlier this morning uh, getting ready for this. Because um, I, I know I'm reading about it in your book. I'm like, I vaguely remember uh, Brad Pitt kind of rambling. And I, I, I came away. I was like, dude, 12 Monkeys is so good. <laughs> and I'm and I'm just getting sucked into Brazil. I had to do an interview before I started talking to you. Look, you, you so you finished 12 Monkeys. I did finish 12 Monkeys. I I, I, the ending is the best ever because you can argue about mm-hmm. what exactly it means. And, and Oh, I wish we had more time because i want to ask you more about that ending um the that movie kind of made me go whoa this is good because it's very 90s in its presentation terry gilliam had a different a different a definite style of movie that he made um and that definitely fit with the camera angles and stuff like that um but when you get about halfway in it's like man this movie is really that second act it's like hold on to your seat this is really getting getting exciting um so thank you for writing about these you also made me watch rollerball because you had an essay before the book came out about rollerball that made me go actually read the rollerball uh oh yeah i went and found that yeah, you can find it online, I think. Yeah, I found it online for free. Yeah. Yeah. So, so uh, thank you for that. And I did avoid the LL. I, no, I tried to watch the LL Cool J Rollerball. It does does not hit the same way as that movie. Uh, we have a sports show here on This Is Revolution called Beyond the Red Zone, and I created an intro video for it where I use Rollerball and Tron. Um, you know, two sports that don't really exist, right? Light cycles and yet <laughs> play our cards, right? Yeah. Wherever you are listening or watching this show, there's links in the description to the book. Come with me. If you want to live by Dr. Michael Harris, he's been on the show before promoting all of his books. I tell you guys to buy all these books. I've bought these books for people over the years because he's one of my favorite authors and he's someone that I feel very comfortable calling a friend. Thank so, you very much. Jason. So appreciate it. Soon as you're done with this show, we'll be in the champagne room Toussaint and I, we will be live. This sadly is pre-recorded because of Dr. Harris's schedule and our 16 hour time difference. So 
thank you so much for making the time to do this. Happy. Uh, Happy to be for doing it. And we are out. <laughs>